Hello and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. This is Steve Poos Benson, the host of the podcast. It is wonderful to come to you here today, coming from the basement studio of Columbine United Church, my own little playground down here. I have so much fun making videos and recording podcasts. It's a lot of fun. Today, I have a special guest with me. She is one of my bosses. I have a Presbyterian boss, a UCC boss, and a Methodist boss. And this is Jessica Rooks, who is the district superintendent of the Mountain Sun Conference. Did I get that right? No, Mountain Sky. Mountain Sky Conference. It used to be the Rocky Mountain Conference. That's why I've been around here for way too long. I remember all the old names. But it is great to have you here, Jessica. So, Tell us who Jessica is. You're a Reverend Jessica, but tell us who you are as a human being, as a person. Thanks for the invitation to join you today. It is great to be here. Um, I am an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. Which means you're a reverend. It means I'm a reverend. I'm a pastor. Because in the Presbyterian Church, an elder, like I guess I'm an elder. I'm a uh, teaching elder. What am I saying? Okay, go. I shouldn't interrupt you. (laughs) I have been in ministry here in the in the Denver metro area most of my life for 20 years under oh, wow. appointment. Um, grew up in Arvada, Colorado, oh, wow. so local. I am a, a local, a fourth generation Colorado native. Wow. Lots of ties to the Denver metro area. Um, married with two kids who've both been raised in the Denver metro area. Okay, where did you me. go to seminary? Islip School of Theology in wow. Denver. What was your first church? Arvada United Methodist. I was the associate there for seven years. So have you been working here in the in the metro area? I have for 18 of my 20 years. For two years, I was in Lamar, Colorado, down in southeast Colorado. So they put you out on the plains to <laughs> they, test you out to see if you could do it, right? For two years. Oh, my um, god! It was a great experience. Um, but otherwise, I've been in the Denver metro area. So you lived in the metro area. You mm-hmm. went to seminary. Where'd you go to college? Western State in Gunnison, Colorado. Oh, so you spread out your wings a little bit. Yeah. But you still, I mean, you on the other side of the mountains. There's no reason to leave Colorado, right. I've decided. That's right. All right, you're a district superintendent. Mm-hmm. What is a district superintendent? In the United Methodist Church, we have annual conferences, and those are geographically bound. Mountain Sky Conference is Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, and one church in Idaho. Wow. And within a conference, we are geographically split up into districts. And then one clergy person oversees a district, which means I support, resource, supervise the clergy and local churches in my geographical district, which is the Mile High Metro District, Denver metro area. But, you know, really what that means is when things get down and dirty... You're, you're the front line. You're the one that has to go in. I mean, you got a sweet job. you got a nice job until a minister screws up or there's a church fight or something like that. Correct. And then you've got to go in and play boss, right. right? Right. When things are going smooth, I worship in different churches on Sundays. I spend time with clergy, with laity, but then I'm the first one they call when there's conflict, <laughs> when there's issues. <laughs> then I step in. So yep. You're the boss. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here today is because of the conflict that's going in within mm-hmm. the, the United Methodist Church. There's a lot of um, kind of buzz out there in the religious world, all the different religious uh, magazines and blogs that I read. We all know something is happening in the United Methodist Church. It, it feels like it's a split over LGBTQI plus issues. But I don't know if it's over such things as progressive conservative after over biblical interpretations. Just kind of, I think it's a whole lot of stuff. So the first thing I want you to talk about 
So the Presbyterian Church USA is a church that is a denomination that is located in the United States. Uh-huh. Same with the United Church of Christ. The United Methodist Church is radically different. Tell us about how the United Methodist Church is different. We are a global church, a global denomination, which means when we get together to make decisions at the highest level of the church, we have representatives from the United States, from countries in Africa, from the Philippines, from countries in Europe. We span the globe. And so when we make decisions, they are global decisions. And when we have differing views, it is across the globe, different contexts, different cultures globally, rather than just in the United States, which is what's common in many other denominations. Right, So, because like the Presbyterian Church USA, Peace USA, we just deal with each other here in the States, Mm -hmm. whereas you've got, when you deal with stuff like you get, is it called the annual conference that you get together with? The general conference conference. happens once every four years, Um. and it's almost a thousand delegates from across the globe. Oh, wow. And so there's representatives from every annual conference, every central conference, and that's the decision-making body of the church. Uh, It's about half United States and half outside the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's, it's a lot of different cultures and contexts coming together to try to make decisions for one denomination. And that's radically different than the PCUSA or the UCC. Radically different. Yes. To take into consideration all the different cultures, Mm -hmm. all the different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. all the different Christian traditions that that come from these global things, global global countries. All right. So let's talk about the conflict. Okay. What give us the history of the conflict. When did all this start Coming to the surface. 1972. Oh, wow. A while. <laughs> the, the 1972. you have been fighting since 1972. Yes. The 1972 General Conference um, language was inserted into our Book of Discipline. That's Which our is, polity what, book, our okay. law book, our history book. Um, and it, it said, it said, still says, that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Huh? That language was passed in 1972, and we've been fighting over it ever since then. Every general conference since then has been an attempt to change the language or to remove the incompatibility language, and it hasn't passed. So we have continued that incompatibility language since 1972 and continued to fight over whether that's appropriate language, whether that's Christian language, whether that's language that we as a denomination should have. So I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by going back to 1972. I mean, this kind of, these kind of things just don't come out of fresh, the thin air. Maybe they do. But was there a history that was going on behind the people that brought this forward? Mm-hmm. Was it just a couple of people from a couple regions? Or was there, was there a bigger fight issue going on within the denomination that brought this, this motion forward? In 1968, the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren Church merged Uh and became the United Methodist Church in 1968. And there was differing opinions on the level of inclusion of the LGBTQAI community even then. And so language came in 1972. Originally, the language was supposed to simply state that um, homosexuals were of sacred worth. And then there was a substitution to that language, and that became the incompatibility language, which passed in 1972. So who, was it a church? Was it a person? Was it a group of people? It was a group of people. 
who just were out. They, they wanted to make homosexuality just not a part of not just the denomination, but not a part of Christianity, period. Was there a large yeah. LGBT, LGBTQIA population in the, in the denomination at that time? Not who were out. Um, there, there was a population, but folks were not yet out. And so mm-hmm. the idea was to have language that would be affirming, at least as affirming as you could get in 1972. Uh, and there was work towards that language. And then there was a shift by a group of, of clergy and laity who didn't want to be affirming. Wow. And so they brought the substitution language, which just narrowly passed. It wasn't oh overwhelming. Gosh. It was a, a narrow margin, and it passed. And there's been efforts to remove that language ever since. Now, one of the interesting things for me that as kind of an outsider inside, you know, my, it's really interesting. My, I was raised... Uh, Presbyterian, but my parents, when I graduated from high school, they moved and they joined a Methodist church, United Methodist Church, and they've been, they were United Methodist for 40 years, I think, okay. 40, 45 years, so they, so uh, they were kind of in the middle of all this, like my dad, my mom was always really uh, pro-LGBTQI, but my dad was really anti, <laughs> and yes. he and I went round and round about it, and he was uh, a part of the group within the Denver, uh, I'm sorry, the Portland, Oregon area that were against the LG, LGBTQIA uh, people, a part of the denomination. So mm. I was kind of a part of it. But it's more than, was it the United States versus the rest of the world? Was this coming from the African church? Was it coming from Indonesia? Was it coming from the states all over? What was it? So the folks who have probably been the primary leaders of of anti-inclusion are clergy from clergy and lady from the United States, but specifically Southeast, South Central. Uh Uh, And then they um, found like-minded folks from conferences in Africa, the Philippines, and Europe. And so then folks in the West and the Northeast are typically more progressive and inclusive, Uh Mm -hmm. and then also found like-minded folks not as many from conferences in Africa and the Philippines and Europe. And so there, there is a U.S. contingent of where you can identify folks who are more inclusive and less, and then also outside the United States. Because yeah, I guess one of the things that I had, had heard or been told, I don't know, maybe this is why I wanted to do this podcast, is that it was a group of African churches or Indonesian churches. And it kind of felt, I don't know if that was racist or whatnot, that kind of, or nationalist or whatever, but it really wasn't so much nations being pitted against each other, but it was a group within the United States that felt this way. Are they conservative across the board on other issues like abortion, racial issues? Are they evangelical, fundamentalist? Um, You could probably say they're more evangelical. Um, They would use the term traditional. Traditional, okay. Um, All right. Yeah, um, I'd get that. I, they are for racial inclusivity, racial diversity. So they have no problem Um, with that. Correct. Um, At least the stance right now is women fully in leadership roles in the same way as men. Um, So with race and gender inclusive, um, not with orientation and identity. What's their problem? (laughs) I mean, for gosh sakes, we, we got over the slavery issue back in the 18... 60s, 1870s. I know. And then 
we got over the ordination of women, and it's crystal clear in the Bible, in the New Testament, where women are supposed to be quiet, have a subs, you know, subs, subsidy role, substitutionary role, whatever I'm trying to say. <laughs> subservant. Subservant. Role. That's my word. A subservient role to men, and yet we all got to the point where we said that's wrong. Women have called by God. They have an equal place with men. They have a voice to say, their prophetic voice. We got over that. Right. I don't get this in any of our denominations. I do not get this. Do you have any idea? Is it biblical interpretation? Is it authority of scripture? What's motivating them? Homophobia? A little bit of all of it? I have my opinions. I'm not sure that my opinions would line up with what folks within the community would agree with um, because I don't get it either. I don't understand it. Um, Folks will argue it's biblical interpretation. It's biblical authority. They'll make all of those arguments. um, And yet you could make the same arguments against inclusion of women and slavery and all sorts of different things. So um, there is the biblical interpretation, biblical authority argument that that often gets um, gets highlighted. I don't think it holds up when you no, when you doesn't. compare it to to other social issues. Um, most folks I know who are passionately not for inclusion um, grew up in an environment where, from day one, they were taught that homosexuality was wrong, and so it's it's a it's a fight against something within their core. Now, we know lots of people who grow up with certain teachings who rebel against those right. or who recognize they're wrong later right. in life. Right. Um, and so I don't think that's an excuse. Um, I, I do know in conversations I've had, sometimes they can't even fully explain it. The argument is, I just know it's wrong. Yeah, you know, my dad, uh, my dad and I went round and round and round about this. Uh, when I'd go home for vacation or whatnot, we finally got to a place where um, we didn't talk about it just because mm-hmm. it was just we weren't going to go anywhere. Right. Cause it, and one time in particular, I remember talking with my dad, and I said, okay, let's go out. We're in the Bible. Let's go after those passages. So we'd go after those passages, and I'd dismantle them. Mm-hmm. And then we'd talk theologically, and, and uh, I would paint them in the corner. And I'd say, Dad, let's boil it down to what are the two great commandments that Jesus said? How does this square against anything about love and loving your neighbor? Can we, are we not called to love our gay and lesbian and bisexual, transgender, inquiring, queer friends, our, our neighbors? No, it's wrong. He couldn't, just as he said, he couldn't put his thumb on it. It was just wrong in his mind. And, and I, I just, was flabbergasted by it. I, I didn't know if it was homophobia. Well, of course it's homophobia. Right. But it was... But what's the root of it? Yeah, I couldn't figure and, out what the yeah. root is because my mom is as progressive as the day is long. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have grew up... My faith is really fashioned by my mom's progressive kind of planting those progressive seeds in mm-hmm. me when I was a kid. Um, but my dad just could never, ever square with it. So I think that's yeah. right, really right on as far as people, they don't even know why. They just want to right. say that it's wrong. And even though you can point to places in the Bible like the two great commandments, they just yeah. they 
they just it's, it's an emotional response it's not a wow. reasoned logical response i i love to to ask people if they if they know when the term homosexuality first appeared in the bible oh right because folks then assume that it's right since day one it's been there 2000 years and then right. you point out that in 1948 when the revised standard version was being developed it was the first time the term homosexuality was right. ever used in the bible that's not a long time ago. That's right. less than 100 years. Right. The term homosexuality has only been in right. our Bible for 100 years. It's not orthodox. It's not traditional. It's not ancient. And if you delve into those texts, what now gets used as homosexuality in the Bible is not same gender loving relationships. Right. It's not identity. It's not orientation. And you begin to have those conversations with people. And they don't necessarily know what to do. No, they don't. Because they've been taught their entire life that the Bible says, well, it doesn't actually right. say that. Right. Uh-huh. And, and I always, when I, tried, when I was talking with my dad about this, I used to say, okay, let's pretend that you're right and I'm wrong. Let's pretend the Bible says that, that they're an abomination and everything else. And I used to say, what do you propose we do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we exile them? Do we have nothing more to do with them? Are they a pariah? Are they lepers? And if they are, what was Jesus' response to lepers? I mean, exactly. it was like this thing. And, and he had no idea to that whole, an answer to that question is like, what do you propose? Do you want us to just turn our backs on them? They, it's like, they hadn't been able to think that far as far as how to respond. Okay, let's say you are true. Have you ever had anybody talk with you about that? I have. Um, and we've had those conversations when churches will say, well, we are welcoming. We'll f- we're fully welcoming. Folks in the LGBTQ community are more than welcome to attend our church. And I say, okay, well, then can they lead a Sunday school class? Can they work with your kids? Can they be on staff? And and folks kind of stop and say no. And I say, so they're not <laughs> fully welcome. You're saying they can sit in the pew and worship and they can give money. That's right. But they can't participate in the life of the church the way everybody else can. That's not fully welcoming. You can't claim to be a welcoming community if welcome has a limit. You can do this, but others can do more. You're limited at this, but hey, we'll take your money. Wow. Uh, And so it's not fully welcoming because I think people don't think through that three, four, five thought process down. If we're saying this is an abomination, then what? What does that actually mean? If we're saying it's incompatible with Christian teaching, which is the horrible Methodist language, how do you claim that somebody is incompatible? Yeah, what do you do? And then, and then it's like, okay, let's pretend you're right. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend you're right. And then I want to say, then what do you propose we do? Right. How do you... How do you turn your back on somebody when obviously the teachings of Jesus are those that people turn their back to are those people you're supposed to minister to? And it's like this rat wheel that mm-hmm. that they get turned into, and it's like they don't see the contradiction to, to right. in their own language. Well, and Jesus often spoke to people, warning them that when they focus on the law and forget the people— yeah. They're going against God. Yeah. God's not asking us to focus so much on the law that we negate people. God's yeah. asking us to focus on people. And, and the laws are established to help us be in community with each other. They're supposed to be life-affirming, not life-denying. Right. And those are the conversations we're having in the denomination right now, that our book of discipline is not life-affirming. 
Right. And many of us would argue it actually counters Christ. It yeah. counters the message of the wow. Bible, which is why we've been fighting to get rid of that language since 1972 wow. and continue in that, in that fight. So let's switch to... Um, I wake my computer up here before it turns me off. There we go. Sorry about that little commercial break there. <laughs> the computer went off. Tell me what happened when the conference appointed our bishop, who is an out lesbian. How did how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And that was what was the effect that that had on the denomination? Because I I know it had some well, had an impact. How did she get to be appointed a bishop? And mm-hmm. then what was the effect that it had? So in the United Methodist Church, bishops are elected by by clergy and laity within mm-hmm. their jurisdiction. It's another geographical region. So we are in the western jurisdiction, which is pretty much Colorado over to California. Okay, so it's big areas. Yes, yeah. Uh, we have a number of conferences, and so we get together every four years to do business of our western area. We have 100 delegates that are elected by their annual conferences to be a delegate to the jurisdiction. And at the jurisdictional conference, we elect bishops every four years if there's an opening. Sounds like the DMV gone wild. (laughs) It's it's a process. Oh, my god. We just did this a couple weeks ago. It's a process. Um, But to be a candidate for bishop, you have to be an ordained elder in good standing. So you have to be a reverend. You do. Uh, Yeah. An ordained pastor in good standing in your conference in the denomination. Uh, Bishop Karen Olivito uh, in 2016, she was an ordained elder. She was a pastor at Glide United Methodist Church in San Francisco. She was in good standing. She became a candidate. Can I stop you right there? Yes. Will you hold your train of thought if I interrupt you? Okay, yes. Hold your train of thought. Okay. Okay, so she's at Glide Memorial. Mm -hmm. Do they know she's an out lesbian? Yes. Then how... How is she an out lesbian and a reverend in the United Methodist Church where, where homosexuality is incompatible? No one had ever filed a complaint against her, or if they had, it had never had a consequence where she would lose being a minister. So she was out. She was out. She was, she was really out. clear about it. Mm-hmm. She was really clear mm-hmm. about it. But nobody filed a complaint about her. Right. Did, did they just look the other way? Did they not care? We're in the West. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're in, in the, the West. West. Um, I, com- complaints are confidential. I can't, I don't right. know if anyone had ever filed okay, one against great. her or not, but that. she, if they had, it had been resolved. She'd never lost her credentials. Okay. So she was an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, uh, and was lifted up as a candidate for bishop hmm. and then was elected yeah, by, by the, the, by the candidates, by the, uh, by the pe- delegates, by mm-hmm. the delegates, by yeah. the folks. Yeah. So there were a hundred of us. I was a delegate to that yeah, jurisdictional. Cool. It was, kind of it was a historic moment. Yes. Um, and there were, there were eight or nine candidates for one spot and you go through a process and you do balloting and it, it takes a few days. Um, and it was clear that the spirit was moving huh. and we elected her as a bishop. I mean, she's really cool. The stuff that mm-hmm. I've, I've never really met her. I've seen her, but I've never met her. Mm-hmm. But the, um, my acquaintance with her is her writing. Yeah. Her, she is a brilliant theologian she's prophetic biblical scholar Mm -hmm. prophetic Mm -hmm. in the most pastoral way the stuff that she writes in the wake of accidents Mm -hmm. and traumas and tragedies even as this whole thing has been going on in our methodist church she has really taken the high road she has been a pastor to pastors i mean she's been Mm -hmm. she's really been a pastoral 
prophetic mm-hmm. witness. R- witness, thank you. Yeah. Better word. Yeah. Okay, so she is appointed bishop. Mm-hmm. Half the church goes, praise Jesus, and the other <laughs> half the church, they hit the ceiling. What happens? So 2016, she was elected. She was assigned to, at that time, Rocky Mountain Conference uh, and Yellowstone. We merged, became uh-huh. Mountain Sky. Mountain Sky, I don't remember um, that. And um, we, we had a rough time for about for a couple years. Uh, we had a number of churches who lost quite a bit of membership. Um, because, oh, wow, they because left. Because now we have a lesbian bishop. Wow. Um, folks, especially in some of the more conservative areas mm-hmm. of of our states, um, there was some hard conversations within churches, and 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 we really, as a conference, then dealt with: Are we inclusive and welcoming or not? I think, in many ways, it helped us firm up who we claimed to be mm-hmm. and live into that in a real way. It challenged churches to not simply say they were welcoming, reconciling, affirming, but to really, really live into that. Um, she wasn't welcomed in every church in every town. It so, was because does a bishop go and visit mm-hmm. churches? Preach she preaches. Church? She goes to worship. She goes to anniversary celebrations. Uh-huh. Um, when there's disasters, uh-huh. she's often there to be with people. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our churches and communities welcomed her. Mm-hmm. Um, some struggled more than others, um, but it also then kind of. Um, It heightened the anxiety of the denomination. It really did. Because she um, was she the first lesbian, first out, out. first yeah, LGBTQI mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, she was the first out LGBTQ bishop. Um, we just elected a second huh? bishop two weeks ago in the Western jurisdiction, wow. um, a, a gay man. Wow. And so now the Western jurisdiction has two out LGBTQ bishops. Oh, the denomination is shaking um, in its boots now. It's a whole different response oh, this really? time. Yeah. We've come a long way in six years. Wow. Um, but part of what happened in 2016 is um, it really emphasized folks who could not be inclusive and folks who just couldn't handle that there was an out lesbian bishop in the denomination. It just blows and, my mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the the fighting intensified, so to speak. And, and not so much fighting, but, but folks who were feeling angst, it intensified greatly. Um, it came to a head in 2019. We had a special called um, General Conference in 2019. And that's where the whole the whole Kit Kat and yep, the, the whole the global end. group comes whole, together. About a thousand delegates come together. 2019. 2019. Okay. Um, and we passed some legislation that not only kept our incompatibility language, but um, made it worse. Oh, how do you make it worse? Yeah, you would wonder. Um, oh we, my gosh. <laughs> we have a process in our denomination. If there's com- a complaint against a clergy person or a bishop or a lay person, we have process. We have fair process. We have a just resolution process. Um, there is never automatic consequences to anything. And in 2019, some of the legislation that passed was automatic consequences for clergy who had officiated at same-gender weddings or clergy who you could prove were part of the LGBTQ community. Oh, my gosh. Um, So it got worse. This was in 2019? This was in 2019. And what's interesting, um, this is my personal theory. So up until 2019, we had this quiet middle 
probably the the largest group if you you know if you look at the progressives the conservatives the middle the centrists they were probably the largest group but the quietest group they kind of were okay sitting there letting the progressives and the traditionalists kind of go at it so to speak after 2019 they stopped being quiet and they started standing for inclusion oh really yeah they weren't willing to go with this ultra punitive very exclusive what many saw was not methodist wow legislation that was passed in 2019 it was fascinating it was both a really rough experience and time and challenge in the denomination and also that pivotal moment where a whole bunch of people who had been quiet stopped being quiet and so the centrists aligned with the progressives so to speak that's overgeneralizing, but basically centrists and progressives came together and said we want the united methodist church to be a place where folks all across the theological spectrum can worship together can be together but we're not going to do that without being inclusive so there's, so there's an upswell right now. Mm-hmm. There is a major upswell. Wow, that's cool to know. Yes, which has led the traditionalists to form a separate denomination. Oh, no. oh. So there is now the Global Methodist Church, uh-huh. which is a very conservative traditionalist denomination. The Global Methodist Church. Which just launched um, May 1st. And now... Now some of the United Methodist churches are deciding if they want to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church and go to the Global Methodist Church. Clergy are deciding if they want to stay or go. Some people call it a split. It's more like a splintering. Our Uh denomination is not splitting in half. The denomination as a whole is staying with the centrists and progressives. And there are some conservatives, traditionalists, who are splintering off to form a new denomination. Some churches are choosing to leave to go independent. They'd just like rather in, be in, independent like right now. Just not claiming United Methodist? Or any, any denomination. Any denomination. Yeah, they want to disaffiliate. The first church on the corner. Yep, pretty much. Yeah, the community church. So they're the wishy-washy bunch. Not, didn't somebody say something about spewing something out of the mouth in the Bible if you're wishy-washy? Yeah, there might be something to that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we, we are in the midst of, of a time of change in the denomination. Wow. There is a splintering off. Um, in our conference, in Mountain Sky Conference, we had six churches disaffiliate this year out of 360. Only six? Only six. So far. That's we, good. It, yeah. We could out have how more. many 360-ish. Yeah. Um, well, that's good. In our denomination. That is, that is a splinter. That's right, not a split. Right. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was a Mm-mm. big deal. It's just a splinter. So in our denomination to this point, there are about 1,300 churches that have left out of 30,000. So it's not, it's not a split. We anticipate more over the next couple of years. Uh-huh. Th- there's going to be more. There are some conferences that are losing a third of their churches. Oh, my gosh. Just uh, because of where deal. they're at. Like right. down in the south and the yeah, southeast. southeast, south central this is impacting some conferences much more than it's impacting uh-huh. us. In the West, we're not going to see a huge a huge group leaving. Right. Um, Southeast, South Central, they're going to see more. Um, but right now, 1,300 churches out of 30,000 yeah, have nothing. disaffiliated. That's nothing. Right. Well, you know, the, actually, that's really good news because I thought this was like a rift in the middle of the denomination. It's being presented that way. And the voices who are leaving are 
speaking in such a way that they're claiming it's larger than it is and they're loud uh-huh. and they're savvy and they're they, they know how to get the message across and so it sounds like it's bigger than it actually is you know this is such good news i mean really i had i thought it was a big deal i thought it was like a rift that that to the whole it international church was going <laughs> to split in two nope What's interesting is that um, many leaders in Africa, in churches in the conferences in Africa, have confirmed, affirmed that they will maintain their affiliation with the United Methodist Church, that they're not leaving. No kidding? They're not going global Methodist. I heard that it was the African churches that were... No. 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 So there are some. I mean, there are definitely some. We're just like the United States. Right. Yeah, um, but right now the the bishops and some of the primary leadership have said they're staying United Methodist. That's it great could change, news. But that's the latest out of the conferences in Africa yeah. at this point. You know, I'll never forget when the Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA. Um, so I've been fighting uh, the G- LGBTQI ordination and gay marriage. I've been doing uh, gay marriages long before the denominations, the PCUSA recognized right. it, or the, the UCC always recognized it, so I always claimed I was UCC on those days, or before the Methodists. <laughs> that was a cool thing about being an ecumenical pastor. I could, right. be, I could be UCC one Sunday and do a gay marriage. <laughs> Anyways, I never thought I'd see the day mm-hmm. when the PCUSA would recognize gay marriage or ordain uh, a gay pastor. Mm-hmm. And when that happened... There was all kinds of threats. This is going to destroy the church. People are going to leave and yada, yada, yada. And, and like I had a colleague whose uh, church split literally mm-hmm. in half. He lost half his membership overnight. Yeah. It was, he was devastated by it. And there was a group of us who said, let's get this done mm-hmm. let's quit worrying about splitting this we believe this is the right thing this is a faithful thing this is the christian thing if they don't want to go along with us they don't have to but let's us do the right and faithful thing and actually it breathed a tremendous amount of life into the PCUSA, the presbyterian church mm-hmm. usa when we did this we everybody got their feathers ruffled and they stomped off and went home but now the PCUSA, I think, is kind of thriving as a denomination because we made this right. decision. Right. Do you see the same kind of thing happening in the United Methodists? I do. We've been pretty focused, especially for the past six or eight years, on on theological differences, on different understandings of inclusion. And it has become a primary focus, especially when we get together globally. It, it, most conversations, most legislation turns towards... Are we going to be inclusive or not? We're kind of ready for that to, to not be the primary conversation. We're ready to pass legislation to, to put language in, in our official book that is affirming and inclusive, and then we can go on to the ministry needs in our cultures, in our contexts, in our, in our churches. Um, we're looking at, at, at kind of coming at it differently. We've been global, and so in many ways we look at a cookie-cutter approach. These are the rules, and they have to pass for everybody everywhere. Right. Well, that doesn't work. Right. It, it hasn't really ever worked, but it's really not working now. Right. And so there's new legislation going into the 2024 General Conference 
that will create more space for regional and contextual ministry. That's good. Very, very good. That's our good. book of discipline, our law book, will allow for, for different areas, different regions to adapt based on the needs of that region. Finally, we're c- kind of coming into the current context of yeah. what we need to be as a denomination. We'll still be global, and so there's still that uniqueness to the global yeah, that's denomination. Cool. That's but cool yes. that you're able to hang on to that. Yeah. For some reason, I, I'm so glad we're having this just for my own understanding, because <laughs> yeah. I thought it was like this continental mm-hmm. rift that was going to separate the church into nations right. and all different kinds of stuff. No, the rift is actually the strongest within the United States. Huh. Uh, and so so we're getting to a point where there's there's a place where we're looking forward, what this will look like, how we can restructure, how we can kind of figure out how to be a, um, a more flexible, nimble denomination, mm-hmm. even as we are global, uh, and adapt to the needs, to the changes, to the regional contexts and differences, uh, and not fight over you know, because it's a rule here, it has to be a rule there. Right. We're right. just past that. Um, and, and so we're, we're getting there. We're a global institution. It's going to be slow. It's going to take us two years, probably another four years after that, to yeah. structurally be where we mm-hmm. need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have more and more clergy and leaders and churches and laity who are saying, even if we're technically not structurally there yet, we're going to start living into it. Wow. And we're going to start doing contextual appropriate ministry where we're at and be okay with somebody doing what's contextually appropriate in their setting, even if it's different than our setting. We're getting there. It's just slow. So let me ask you, let me switch switch up just a little bit. I want you to first talk as a Christian. Okay. Just as a a human being, as a person who claims to be a Christ follower. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to all this? What does it mean for you? Uh, when I think of myself as a Christ follower, I I really go to the Gospels and the social justice component of the Gospels. And so I, I think to be a Christ follower is to care about the living conditions of all people and, and how to live in a way that doesn't um, negate others or lead to the to institutions where others are dehumanized. Um, So just as a Christ follower, I focus on small and big ways that we can affirm all people. Um, What would you say, if if there was an LGBTQI person sitting in here at one of these microphones, what Mm -hmm. would you want to say to them? That God created as they are. And God, God created them to be who they are, and God loves them as they are, and because of that, so do I. Now as a pastor, as now, now step, step into the role as a reverend, <laughs> yeah. and as a district superintendent, what would you say to them? Uh, I'd say I'm sorry for the harm that our denomination uh-huh. has done and continues to do, uh, and that I, I believe that the harm that we have done is wrong and goes against Christian teaching, uh, and that... I commit to and lead in a way that tries to counter that harm uh, and, and offers a different understanding from what our denomination ha- has had for decades. Yeah, I really agree with that. Mm-hmm. And, and just, to, I mean, so uh, 
uh, a couple days ago here, this podcast is going to be released in December. Um, but just a couple of days here in Colorado Springs, there was a shooting at a dance club. Uh, uh, club Q. What was it called? Club Q. Club Q. Mm-hmm. Five people killed. Mm-hmm. Just tragic, tragic. Mm-hmm. And you know, I guess I, I agree with you. I want to apologize uh-huh. to our brothers and sisters that it's just not what we're doing to them in the church, but what we're doing to them in the culture. I just I am so embarrassed about how we as a culture are responding to them. So I agree. Yeah. Well, and sickened. Yeah, I mean, sickened. just that, just sickened when when any group of people are seen as less than yeah. for for being who God created them to be. Yeah. Uh, I think it absolutely goes against what Jesus has taught us and yeah. models for us and yeah. calls us to. Good. Well, Jessica, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. I have learned so much myself. <laughs> I know I do this for other people, but you just cleared up 1,300 people, 1,300 churches is bug spit compared to the entire denomination. This is like a splinter on a fingernail. Mm. It's not a major rift. That is such good news. That is great news. Good news for the UMC. All right, folks. Well, thank you for listening to the Cowboy Jesus podcast. I want you to always remember you can catch my blog, also Cowboy Jesus, published on Friday. You can find it on my Facebook page. You can also uh, sign up for it to get it in the email. It's also in Columbine United Church's web website and in our e-blast as well. Thank you for listening today. Get the good news out about the United Methodist Church. Jessica, thank you so much. Take care. We'll see you. Thank you.